listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice. It's a pleasure to welcome you back, friends, to another episode of Resurrection Life. Christ is risen. We are concluding today the series of messages that I've called A Kingdom Conscious Life. Uh, This was originally a series of sermons that I preached at Resurrection back in 2008. And today's podcast is in some ways uh, the most ambitious. I'm asking the question uh, in this message called The Kingdom and Your World, how is it that kingdom conscious Christians view the world, relate to the world, uh, pray for the whole world? I'm speaking there of all of the institutions and cultural expressions of planet Earth, but I'm also talking about the planet itself. Uh, In this message, I'm trying to uh, push hard against some misunderstandings about the kingdom of heaven that I think plague Christianity today. Uh, Many think of the kingdom of heaven as having very little to do with the earth. Uh, And there are certain misunderstandings about the future of planet earth that feed into this uh, misunderstanding about the relationship of the kingdom of God to the earth. So in this podcast, I'm going to, for example, be making a case for a, a restorationist view of the future of planet earth rather than an annihilationist view of the future of planet Earth. That may seem like a kind of esoteric, exegetical, or a theological issue, but I want to uh, say to you here at the outset, it makes all the difference in the world uh, as Christians, uh, how we view the future of planet Earth in terms of our laboring, in terms of our ministering on behalf of the King here and now. If God has no real future for our world, then that's going to inform how much we commit ourselves uh, to pursuing the kingdom in this world. But if the world, the earth itself, is going to have a part in the glorious final salvation that God has promised to bring, well, that calls for a very different, that leads to a profoundly different view uh, of the world as Christians. I'm going to be introducing not unique to myself, uh, the term worldly saints. And I want to uh, cast a vision for what it would look like in a holy and righteous way to be worldly saints, to be invested in the affairs of our globe, uh, to be concerned and active uh, with regard to social and political matters. And yes, to be sure, perhaps a little controversially, Uh, in certain circles, to be invested in being good stewards uh, of the natural world. Um, As an aside, uh, I do believe that pagans have made a mess of this whole concern we call environmentalism. And I'm calling in this sermon uh, for us as Christians to recognize that's our issue, uh, and a biblical perspective on it is what's the crying need of the hour. So, Uh, These are just a few of the things that I'll be touching on, perhaps my most ambitious effort uh, in this series on living with a kingdom consciousness. And I'll just say that if for no other reason, uh, the quotes uh, that I will share from Benjamin Warfield, great Presbyterian father and teacher at Princeton Seminary in the 19th century, they would be worth the price of admission alone. That is, uh, if you uh, choose to listen on. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, to just two verses of that chapter. And though you will know it by heart, it will be good to have it open before you as well. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount, as you know, and the portion of it we call the Lord's Prayer. We come full circle, as it were. In our recent studies of the kingdom would not be saying it too strongly to say that the Lord's Prayer and the opening petitions... We number them as three petitions. They really are one petition. Sum up our whole understanding of the kingdom of God and our place in it. 
It really is not stating it too strongly. And that is a prayer that is to shape all of our praying, not just a prayer to be prayed as we do. So I will read simply verses 9 and 10 of Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. We're taking up the fourth question of the outset of this year. We've been putting before our eyes and ears this question of the practical relevance of the kingdom to our everyday lives. We've sought to see that relevance of the kingdom to our family, then to our callings, then to our church. And this morning we take up the kingdom and your world. I want to put two things to you this morning. The first, I want to say to you and enlarge for you this truth. The kingdom is coming to this world. And secondly, and on the basis of that, the kingdom therefore calls for worldly saints. The kingdom, first of all, is coming to this world. I'm making much this moment of the word come in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. He envisions the kingdom as something that's on the move. It's approaching from our vantage point. It's approaching us. It's getting nearer. Indeed, with His coming, Jesus' coming, it's at hand. It's here. You remember that as we studied this prayer some time ago, we reminded ourselves that that is, in fact, how the ancient world, and even to the very recent present world, would see typically a kingdom advancing. It's coming. The kingdom of Assyria, from Jerusalem's standpoint, was coming, was coming, was coming, and finally was here. And it had, in that case, devastating consequences. Jesus says, pray that the kingdom of heaven will come. Come where? Well, come to earth. He goes on in the prayer to say what that kingdom coming will look like. He tells us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus has in mind is that there's a state of affairs in heaven that we should want to not stay there, but to spread, to come from heaven to earth. There's a state of affairs where God's will is perfectly done, perfectly observed, that we should want to, to not be contained to heaven, but to spill out of heaven, to spread, to come to earth. What earth? Well, this earth, that's the whole point of the prayer. This earth where God's will isn't being done is the place the kingdom needs to come. This world where God's will is so openly flouted. This world that is so broken and sinful. This prayer is the reflection of all the Scriptures teaching that if this world is going to be mended, it will have to be by no amount of human will accomplish it. It will have to be because God intervenes in this world and changes it. And so this prayer is, Thy kingdom come to this earth. There's a trajectory of the kingdom that is one way. It's from heaven to earth. It's something that comes from there to hear. Now, perhaps you suspect me at this point of majoring on the obvious, but you need to realize something. There are many Christians who think of the kingdom of heaven not as something coming to us, 
but something that we go to. They think of the words kingdom of heaven as a reference to where the kingdom will be. It's a kingdom that's going to be there. It's a kingdom that's going to be not here, but there in heaven. Kingdom and heaven become virtual synonymous in their speaking. It's a kingdom that's in another realm from ours. Whereas we've seen in recent months, that expression is doing just the opposite. It's speaking of a kingdom that's not in another realm, but from another realm. It's a kingdom that descends from heaven to earth, just like the king did. He descended from heaven to earth. Now, let me tell you precisely what's at stake in your understanding this trajectory of the kingdom. The kingdom coming to earth rather than our going someplace from earth to the kingdom. Your whole understanding of the relevance of this world to the kingdom of God is at stake. And consequently, your whole orientation towards what in the world is worthy of your concern is at stake. If the kingdom is something we leave here to go to, then the kingdom really doesn't have all to do with this world, does it? The kingdom is something, on the other hand, that comes to us here in the world from someplace else. Why? It has everything to do with the world in which we live. It has everything to do with our concern for this world. Let me draw that out for you a little bit more. Those who I've identified as thinking of the kingdom as a place other than this world to which we go typically have what theologians call an annihilationist view of the fate of the world in which we live. Hang with me here. The annihilationist view of the fate of the world in which we live thinks of at the end of time God coming Delivering his people out of the world and then utterly destroying the cosmos that he's made. He rescues us, takes us far away to a very new and different place. And as he leaves, he sets this world on fire. Now, if that's your view of the fate of North Carolina or North America, or for that matter, just north, south, east, west, the world then that has dramatic implications for the way you live in North Carolina, North America, the Northern Hemisphere. If the world is nothing more than a sinking ship, and we are just those people on the ship desperate to get off, then you certainly don't waste time and energy trying to improve life on the ship. If you put your time and energy into anything, it will be simply expended on taking as many people with you off the ship. Come with us to the kingdom of heaven. That will be your view of life in this world. Come with us to the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? Now, that's not Jesus' view of the kingdom. The view of the kingdom that the Scripture teaches that recognizes the kingdom as something that comes to earth is associated, again, in the way theologians speak, with a restorationist view of the fate of the world in which we live. Oh, we believe in the final judgment indeed. But the final judgment as something that brings not annihilation, not total destruction of the world God's made, but a cleansing, a restoration a sweeping of the world clean of sin. Now, you might want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, because that's a passage that is in dispute between these two uh, views of the fate of the world. 2 Peter chapter 3 is a passage that on the surface sounds a lot like what the annihilationist view represents. In chapter 3, verse 10, Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Seems like an open and shut case. God comes for us. He takes us out of this world. 
He sets it on fire and he takes us someplace else. But a more careful reading of even this passage, which is, of course, the strongest passage for the annihilationist view, draws our attention to something a bit more going on here. Look at the last phrase of verse 10. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. How does fire that reduces everything to nothing, that immolates the world, that annihilates the world, how will that expose the works of men on the earth? That's no ordinary fire that does that. What is Peter doing? What kind of language is he using? He's using biblical language of judgment. The fires of judgment, the Scriptures repeatedly uses, are like the fires of a furnace that in the smelting process brings ore to a pure state. It allows the impurities to boil to the surface and be consumed so that the product that's left is something that's pure and cleansed. That's actually the word that is used there at the end. It's a word that's often used of the smelting process. Peter is telling us the last day, in a way that I do not profess to understand, all of what this will look like and what this will consist of, God is going to bring about a radical transformation of the earth such that what is sinful in it is utterly purged, utterly removed. And he says he's going to do it again, like he did in the context of 1 Peter 3, in the flood in Noah's day. That's the analogy he's using. Fire will do then what water did in Noah's day. It will cleanse the earth of all impurity. You say you're making a great deal of this point. What is the difference? Well, I say to you quite literally, it is a world of difference. The Scripture, again and again, speaks to us of God setting Himself not to ball up and throw away the world that He created and has become corrupted, but to restore it as that which His honor depends on. Brothers and sisters, that's why the Bible is so profoundly oriented towards life in this world. That's why so much of the Scriptures is a story about life in this world. That's why the Scriptures so consciously has the bookend of creation and then in Revelation, this new, restored creation. That's why the great figures in this story of the Bible are the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam, by his sin, not only brings men into a state of corruption, but also the world. And so the second Adam is going to undo everything the first Adam did. That means he's not just going to save individual souls. The second Adam would be failing to undo all the first Adam did if that's all he did. He's going to come and bring about a restoration of all the earth. The first Adam undid that. The second Adam will restore that. That's why, brothers and sisters, the same word for what's happened in your soul, regeneration, is used to speak of what's, happened, what's going to happen in the last day. Did you know that? That's how Matthew speaks of it. Matthew 19, verse 28. It speaks of the final day as the regeneration. Are you a different person after you were regenerate by the Spirit? Well, yes and no. Yes. In... A radically new way you see and think and feel and do. But you're the same person God first created. Restored to what you would be without sin. More and more. And in the last day, perfectly restored. So, brothers and sisters, when we find the Scriptures speaking of our world, it speaks of it as that which is groaning in anticipation of what it will experience on the last day. It's eager for the last day. Remember that in Romans? We saw that recently. The world would be up for quite a shock if the last day was annihilated. 
after all that groaning and anticipation. No, no. It's waiting for the time when God will perfect His work in it, of restoring it in a grand and glorious way. Benjamin Warfield preached a sermon to the students at Princeton Seminary on the most famous verse of the Bible that opens, For God so loved the world. And he speaks to this restorationist view of the world. He says, The elect, they're not the residuum of the great conflagration, the ashes, so to speak, of the burnt up world gathered sadly together by the Creator after the catastrophe is over and that He may make a new and perhaps better beginning with them and build from them, perchance, a new structure to replace that which has been lost? No. God is saving the world. The world, mind you, and not merely some individuals out of the world, by a process which involves not supplanting, but reformation, recreation. We look for new heavens and new earth. It is true, but these new heavens and new earth are not another heaven and another earth, but the old heaven and old earth renewed. Or as the Scriptures phrase it, regenerated. For not the individual merely... But the fabric of the world itself is to be regenerated in that, quote, regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of His glory, Matthew 19.28. During the process, Warfield says, there may be much that is discarded, but when the process is completed, then also shall be completed the task which the Son of Man has taken upon Himself and the world shall be saved. This wicked world of sinful men transformed into a world of righteousness. Now, brothers and sisters, do you see how all this turns us from what we could call an escapist mindset towards the world in which we live to a reformational mindset towards the world in which we live? If God's posture towards the world is one of restoration, not rejection, then that's what ours should be. Because the kingdom of God is something which comes to the earth. We do not not ascend to it. It descends to us. That's something to be marked down, brothers and sisters. The traffic of the Bible from God to men is not our going up to Him, but His coming down to us. It's from heaven to earth. It's our saying, Come, O come, Emmanuel. And the incarnation is perhaps the greatest proof of God's intention to restore the world in the last day. The kingdom is coming to this world. Now that means, secondly, that the kingdom calls for worldly saints. I realize the scripture uses the word world oftentimes to sum up all that is wrong with the world due to sin. It sums up all that is true of the world apart from grace. And so worldliness, which we are repeatedly warned against in the Scripture, is often a synonym for sinfulness. And we put into that word, in those uses, everything that is an influence unto ungodliness. The influence of persons, the pressures of societal structures, whole systems of thought. All of that is called often by the Scriptures the world. But brothers and sisters... We use the word, and the Scripture also uses the word world, to refer simply to the created order. And we have entirely slipped the tracks in our thinking if we begin to try to forsake the world in every sense of the word. As if Jesus called His disciples to view with disdain the material world that Jesus Himself made. The word for that view is Gnosticism. That's not the teaching 
of the king. The alternative to sinful worldliness is not anti-worldliness in every sense of the world. Uh, a dislike of the world and a desire to escape it and be someplace else. Like somebody who would prefer to live in the country and so goes about city life with a sense of distaste and disinterest. That is not the calling of the Christian. The biblical alternative to sinful worldliness is a saintly worldliness. It's a saintly worldliness. Well, it's a love for this world and a desire. Listen, a desire to see it become again what God had originally created it to be. That's the love of someone for his hometown as he walks among its partly destroyed ruins after a war in which it's been bombed. It's that kind of love, that kind of worldliness. We have an expression that is liable to much misunderstanding in our midst. It's the word heavenly mindedness. It's often thought of as that desire to just get away from here. Just to be done with this world and to go there rather than here. That's not the biblical view of heavenly mindedness. Heavenly mindedness in our Lord's teaching, in the Lord's prayer, heavenly mindedness is this aching desire for that which makes heaven, that's where God lives, so glorious. And a desire for that which makes it so glorious to become true of the world in which we live. That's heavenly mindedness. And it's a heavenly mindedness is proven by this prayer. This prayer sincerely made. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's why the expression has been used to describe our Puritan fathers that I've used this morning. They were worldly saints. That's an intentionally paradoxical expression applied to that group of men. Why? Because, well, the Puritans were famously committed to the godly life. And separation from all that is sinful about the world, they're famously, or sometimes in some circles, infamously known for that. And yet, the word or the expression is rightly used because those men, our fathers, had a vision for the shaping of whole nations. They were worldly saints. How practical does this saintly worldliness manifest? How, in what practical ways does it manifest itself in a kingdom conscious people? Brothers and sisters, it's an immense topic. You've gathered that already. I'll have to speak generally, but I do have of the many things, three practical manifestations of this saintly worldliness. First of all, Worldly saints live with a global awareness second to none. Worldly saints live with a global awareness second to none. You know, there's a great deal of talk in our day about the new globalism of the 20th and especially the 21st century. Communications technology in particular has shrunk the world. We all now live with greater awareness than generations past of other parts of the world. Communication has never been so fluid between whole continents and nations. And so we trade, we communicate, we are influenced by other members of the world seen as nowhere before. Brothers and sisters, kingdom conscious Christians had this awareness long ago. This globalism, this global awareness, the people of the kingdom have had that from the days their king first taught in the earth. Long before CNN, long before the internet, Christians had shrunk the globe in their minds by having a concern for every part of it being reached with the gospel. Missionaries. They were the globalists before globalism was in vogue. I remember in a college class, I first encountered the expression, a global Christian. And that was simply a, a reference to somebody whose 
missionary-minded and missionary-minded with a view to bringing the gospel to the whole world in faithfulness to the king's great commission. Brothers and sisters, what does that require of you to be such a global Christian? Well, it requires of you first, most basically, an interest. And it requires of you, secondly, a kind of prayer. I realize that there may be no other reason why some of you would have a natural interest in things international. Everything else about you may be a homebody. You're quite content to know basically your zip code, the directions that you need to get to your routine destinations. But brothers and sisters, if you're a kingdom-conscious Christian, you have got at least that profound interest in things global. Something has happened to you to make you all of a sudden concerned about faraway places you have no interest of ever seeing. Like many a mother at the time of the Second World War, all of a sudden began to think of this little rock in the Pacific called Iwo Jima. Never spent any time prior to that war, that kingdom endeavor, if you will, thinking about Iwo Jima. And now all of a sudden... Many a mother and father, of course, as well, had that faraway place riveted in their minds because all of a sudden they had something great at stake in what took place there. That's a global Christian. And that kind of interest is something that's triggered. It may be by sitting there in front of world news tonight. It may be something triggered by your prayers in the church prayer meeting because that's where it will be manifested. That's where it will be proven. Prayer. Early in my ministry here, in our church prayer meetings, we were going through a little book called Operation World. Some of you will know of it. It's an attempt to put every nation in the world in there with some kind of summary details about the prospects of the gospel, the success or failures of the gospel there. And the stated purpose of this was to make World Christians, another variation on the same theme that I'm making here to us. We're doing something of that kind of globe trotting in our present days as we try to follow our missionaries in our prayers. We're just doing what the Apostle Paul manifests in his letters, where he's very clearly mapped out the world and said, This is the place that needs Christ. Most right now, this is the place where Christ has at least been preached. He's got, he's got this map of the world in front of him. And brothers and sisters, everybody else in this world can afford to be provincial, can afford to be isolated, can afford to be without interest in the world, but you. Because you're a Christian. And that means that you're concerned with a global awareness. Secondly, Kingdom-conscious Christians, worldly Christians, worldly saints will be deeply invested in those things, social and political. Concerns that are social and political will be of great concern to the worldly saint. Here's how the bumper sticker says, Think globally, act locally. Have you ever seen that on a bumper sticker and thought? How profoundly biblical. You probably didn't. You probably thought, I can put in a whole lot of other worldviews into that statement. I probably don't agree with any of them. You probably looked at the guy driving as you went by. Brothers and sisters, we'll take that bumper sticker. It expresses profoundly a biblical worldview. Your ultimate concern is about the whole world. That fuels your interests, that fuels your prayers, but let's be reasonable. You yourself can't change the world. You are set in a specific tiny corner of it, a locality where you act. So you think globally, you act locally. You are concerned to do your utmost to advance the kingdom just where you are. Yes. Oh, yes, that's the strategy of Muslim extremists. That's the strategy of secular humanists. They're both trying to take over the world. This is also basic to the biblical worldview. Listen to me. 
The world's problems are immense and profound and go beyond the capacities of any of us, but there should be no one more invested in seeing solutions to them than the people of the kingdom. And when politicians or other kinds of social engineers discuss them, Christians are the most, not the least, invested in what they're talking about. It's a political season. I know that I'm preaching this sermon to you. I don't blame you if you've already become jaded. There's much about the political process in our country that aches the head and turns the stomach. I can relate to that. My point here is simply... That everything those men or women are taking up in debate and advancing by way of proposed solutions, that is not something the Christian says, well, that's for the world to think about. Wait a minute. Whose world is it? Those problems are problems that you should be more than anyone else invested in. Jobs, economy, possible recession, national security, immigration, poverty, and, of course, abortion, homosexuality. It is not biblical spirituality to adopt the posture. Well, those are not the things that are important. We as Christians have higher and more important concerns than those things. No, no. Listen to me carefully. We have higher and more important reasons to be concerned about those same issues. They represent the brokenness of the world around us. And they represent so many impediments to God being glorified here on this earth. So we're more deeply invested than anyone else. Of course, that means, I trust, I don't need to emphasize this, that worldly saints come November will vote. There's a race, a mayoral race in my town Recently, that exposed one of the would-be mayoral candidates as someone who hadn't voted for the last 12 years. They had done a little bit of studying. You can get that information. And so one of the mayoral candidates who was presenting herself, in this case, to the populace, was disclosed to have not participated in any elections for the last 12 years. I don't know what that had to do with her failure, but... It certainly should have suggested to those voting, she's not invested in this process. Worldly saints will seek office in the land. One of our men here remembers the day when he was taught Sunday school in a Presbyterian church by one of South Carolina's current senators. Wow, that'd be cool for us to be able to say of this church. Most of all, worldly saints are looking for practical ways to do more than offer brilliant philosophical theological assessment of society's ills. The worldly saint wants to bring practical solutions to them. That's putting feet on this prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Social concerns interest us because that prayer is talking about society. Political things interest us because that prayer is talking about God's law here on earth. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, it would be good for us as evangelical Christians to step back and take a look at ourselves through our fellow citizens' eyes. You know how we're often viewed? We're viewed as dead weight to society. We're viewed as those who have something to say about every form of societal ill, but very little offers of help. Our primary role is simply to vote no. We're obstructionists in addition to dead weight. Now, brothers and sisters, I realize there's a lot of insanity that deserves our Voting no to. But here's what our state, local, city officials should think of the evangelical church. They should think, they should be forced to acknowledge we couldn't get along without them. 
They are a loud group. They are a busy group. But they couldn't, we couldn't get along without them. Like in the early days of the church, where even the enemies of the church, I've repeated this to you before, were forced to say, they not only feed their poor, they feed our poor. That is what they should say of us. We cannot convey to the world around us, we're too busy with doing church things to attend those homeowners association meetings, those town hall meetings, those other gatherings concerned to address the problems of society. As if we just prayed here on Sunday every week, Thy will be done in the church as it is in heaven. We are of all men to be most deeply invested and the problems of our society. We should be, and we should be seen to be in that sense, worldly saints. And lastly, and perhaps most dangerously, worldly saints are those most motivated toward good stewardship of the natural world. This inevitably follows. The kingdom is coming to earth And brothers and sisters, it's coming to earth, to this earth, because the king of the earth has a love for what he's made. He saw it in those days of creation. He stood back, if you will, and said, that is good. It is something which he delighted in. There's a great deal that is no longer good. His plan of redemption is expression of his commitment to bring the day about when he will once again be able to say, It is good. And that results, or should result, in our having a similar love for what He's made. I'm talking about the stuff of creation. The natural world. We're to preserve it. We're to promote its beautification. And yes, I realize what I'm calling good stewardship in the natural world is called in our day by the word environmentalism. And I know that has a rather instinctive response in many of you. It's this. Pastor, that's not our issue. It's not our issue. That's their issue. Our issue is abortion. Our issue is homosexuality. School prayer. That's their issue. And brothers and sisters, for the life of me, I cannot understand why this would be their issue. It's our world. It's the world that the people of the king will inherit. That's an awful lot of real estate to have no concern about its use or abuse. You would think that those of us who have embraced Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, the poor in spirit, will inherit the earth. He was talking about this planet would have some concern. Oh, I am fully aware She's a pollution of energy conservation dizzyingly complex and requires sifting through often contradictory scientific evidence. You will hear no authoritative pronouncement from God's word on greenhouse gases and global warming. This is the authoritative word from God. The stewardship of what he's made is your concern. It's your concern, and it should be your concern more than anyone else's. This should be elementary. I haven't seen the day yet when one of those adopt-a-highway signs that you see along the road has an OPC church in it. You tell me if you're traveling and you see that. Now, that probably has a lot to do with our church's view of the threefold function of the local church. And actually, I I buy that view. But it may also have something to do with this. Many of us wouldn't have the slightest idea what picking up trash has to do with the kingdom. Does it? Does recycling jelly jars... Does the use of the minds, the brilliant minds of men and women to design 
better uses of fuel, more fuel efficient cars and homes? Does our efforts to protect certain animals that God has made wondrously from extinction have anything to do with the kingdom? Only if the kingdom is something that comes to earth. Only if the kingdom is about this world. And you say it is when you pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me simply make an an aside exhortation to you, brothers and sisters. It's something characteristic of mature Christianity that we think clearly on issues from God's perspective, irrespective of good men who disagree and bad men who agree. Many of the loudest voices in our day advocating what they call environmentalism do so from a worldview antithetical to a biblical one. It's their own version of the gospel. They are their own messiahs to the world. And that's something we should expect. Practical atheism creates a vacuum for hope. And something has to fill that vacuum. And many people have done it by anointing themselves messiahs. And they're going to save the planet in a variety of ways. Yes, we may have lost a little perspective, especially the unbelieving mind, over the fate of the snail darter. But haven't you figured out Surely you have. God gives good impulses to bad people for the benefit of this world. It's called Common Grace. A book on the bookstand entitled Far as the Curse is Found, which has been very helpful to me in my understanding of the big picture of the Bible, puts it this way. Whenever human beings, broadest sense of the word, Whenever human beings sense that things are not as they ought to be, that something is amiss in their lives or in their societies, the kingdom of God is what they're hoping for. Wherever justice and mercy are sought, the kingdom of God pushes back the kingdom of evil. It may be by God's common grace taking place completely outside the body of Christ. Indeed, the behaviors and attitudes of our unbelieving neighbors may sometimes come closer to the kingdom in some areas of life than those of believers. Conversely, wherever evil is done or pursued, whether by unbeliever or believer, the kingdom of the devil extends its grasp. So, brothers and sisters, you don't have a concern for conservation because earth is your mother. You don't have concern for animals because you see them as your brother. Why do you have those concerns similar only in outward form to many godless people? Because you're a people concerned with stewardship. You believe in a creator who takes delight in his creation and who's pledged himself to restore it. Well, these are practical ways in which you are called to be worldly saints. Brothers and sisters, I say this all to note to you something that may escape us from time to time. The kingdom of God calls for something more than mere churchliness. The kingdom is bigger than our church. It's bigger than the church. It's as big as the world. And a kingdom conscious Christian is a worldly Christian in the best sense of the world. Best sense of the word. I realize what I'm saying may, it may require a greater involvement with the world around you at the expense of some of your involvement in the church. Sometimes a reordering or balancing of our priorities does involve that. I've I've increasingly come to think of Monday to Saturday as world days. There's there's a world day that's once a year and somebody in their wisdom has appointed it. It's actually Monday to Saturday 
world day for the Christian. You saying, Pastor, we're supposed to be out there trying to change the world? Isn't that idealistic, utopian? Brothers and sisters, it's the gospel. Not that you can change the world, but that God is content with nothing less than seeing all the world brought back into submission, gloriously so, to His Son. Don't settle for some cheap, dime store, paperback version of the gospel. That's the gospel in its biggest form. May I again remind you of words of Warfield to those Princeton Seminary students. Surely, Warfield says, we shall not wish to measure the saving work of God by what has already been accomplished in these unright days in which our lot is cast. The sands of time have not yet run out and before us stretch not merely the reaches of the ages, but the infinitely resourceful reaches of the promise of God. Are not the saints to inherit the earth? Is not the recreated earth theirs? Are not the kingdoms of the world to become the kingdom of God? Is not the knowledge of the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea? Shall not the day dawn when no man needs say to his neighbor, Know the Lord, for all shall know Him from the least unto the greatest. Raise your eyes. Raise your eyes, I beseech you, to the far horizon. Let them rest nowhere short of the extreme limit of the divine purpose of grace. And tell me what you see there. Is it not the supreme, the glorious issue of that love of God, which loved not one here and there, only in the world, but the world in its organic completeness, and gave His Son not to judge the world, but that the world through Him should be saved. As I call you, in that sense, to a saintly worldliness, says one who is, by the grace of God I trust, becoming a worldly saint. I want you to become one too. Let's pray. You've been listening to Resurrection Life with Pastor Nathan Trice, a ministry of Resurrection Presbyterian Church in Matthews, North Carolina. If you've been blessed by today's podcast, consider sharing it with someone you know. And thank you for joining us.